Well, summer's officially over. It is officially, at least in the Haas household, it is officially over. Kids are back in school. Routines are kind of getting there. We're getting closer with bedtimes. Like school, the routines, the jobs, like all the things, we're kind of getting back into our rhythms uh, that we had before summer. But we still love to reminisce. In fact, around the dinner table, we looked at our kids and said, hey, tell me what you loved about summer. What were some of the highlights of summer? What did you remember most about your summer? And everybody's got their different things. We love this trip or we love visiting these people. We love doing this. Everybody's got their own. One of my highlights in watching my kids this summer uh, was actually towards the beginning of summer because they did something they had never done before. And as a dad, as a parent, I love seeing them trying things. I like them moving and being pushed outside of their comfort zone. Even when it's a little difficult, even when it's a little bit risky, I love seeing that they're excited about that. And so my boys had gotten skateboards towards the end of the school year, and they were real excited to go and test their skills as a skater at the skate park in downtown Dawsonville. And right there on Main Street, the Main Street Park. So they've been asking and asking. We finally, during summer schedule, we're able to take them to the skate park. So we take them out on the skate park. My youngest daughter, she's got her little razor scooter. So we all get to the skate park and they're all like bundled up. They've got helmets, elbow pads, wrist guards, knee pads, like the whole thing, just in case it doesn't go well. But we get to the skate park and they're all excited. And then they just kind of stand there. <laughs> and it's like, hey, you got this, like, go. And they're just like, what are we supposed to do? I was like, well, just like, try it. Like, get out on the ramp, just try something. Like, that big ramp? And I'm like, well, I mean, I know it looks intimidating, but man, you can do this. I did this when you were a kid, and, and you can do this. Just try it. And they weren't gonna budge. They were not, because they didn't have the confidence. They didn't have the boldness. They were nervous and scared. I, I get it, all the whole thing. And I tried to help them with the comments. I was like, seriously, like once you start, once you get going, it takes some practice, you'll fall. But like, again, I did this when I was your age and it will be fine. And they looked at me with unbelieving, a disbelief in their eyes. And my oldest said something to the effect of, dad, you don't get it. <laughs> it's the phrase that all of us have said when we were kids and our kids now say it now, as parents, you just don't what? Understand. You don't know what it's like. You don't understand. It was almost like I was pushing too hard. Like, you need to try this. You're going to love it once you try it. But dad, you don't understand. And upon hearing that, I made a decision. Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up on this one. What I'm about to explain and show you might make me even more impressive in your eyes. And others of you are just going to be mortified for me. Like, I can't believe he actually did that. But either way, so I go out to the van. And I pull out some skates that I've had since high school. And I put on these skates. And I decided to show my kids that I did know what it was like. And I'm proud to say I did not break anything. <laughs> I didn't break anything at all. That was my wife's biggest concern, was you're going to walk away from this like twisted and limping. But I'm super proud that I actually walked away from it. You should have seen the eyes on my kids' faces. Like, I can't believe you knew how to do that. And I'm like, I told you I had done this as a kid. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden something happened for both of my oldest boys. They started to gain some confidence. They started to be a little bit more bold. The things they would not do before, they actually started doing because they saw somebody else go first. 
because they looked at their old man who they never thought could understand anything and said, well, if he can do it, surely we can do this. And all of a sudden, their confidence grew because they saw somebody go through it first. In our faith and in our relationship with Jesus, so often we can find ourselves in a season of life where we say those phrase, that phrase that kids love to use, you just don't get it. You just don't understand. Like, God, you're up in heaven, creator of all things, but you don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. You don't know what it's like to deal with this, situa this situation. You've never been in this scenario before, so you don't get it. You don't know what it's like. And we feel like God is disengaged from us, that he's detached from us. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews tells us in regards to the closeness of our Savior. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, we're told, so then, since we have a great high priest, and that phrase, the, the word there, high priest, is referencing Jesus. It's a whole other discussion of why they're calling him that. Since then, since, so then, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest, Jesus Christ of ours, this high priest of ours, look, understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do if he truly does get us and has walked in our shoes? Verse 16 tells us, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. He does understand. He does get it. See, it's not just that God knows us or knows about us or knows what we're going through. He knows what it's like. He knows what it feels like. He's experienced it all. He's walked through the difficulties and the hardships, the struggles and the heartbreak, the temptations and the sufferings, the disappointments and the discouragements. He has experienced them all, yet he did not sin. In other words, he conquered it. He walked through it perfectly, which gives us confidence. Hey, if Jesus has walked through this, if he has made it through this, that gives me a little bit more confidence in him and him navigating and walking me through this. See, when Jesus came, he came with the sole purpose of saving us from our sins, to do what we could not, to die on the cross as a sacrifice for us to take our sins away, which is why they call him the great high priest, to bring us back in relationship with God, to reconcile us with God. But he didn't just come to accomplish that. He came to do that with us, walking with us, walking alongside of us and walking through every single thing we would go through. So yes, he saved us from our sins, but he also walked through the same life that you and I walk through so that, again, we can have confidence. Hebrews chapter two tells us another benefit of Jesus walking through life like us. Verse 18, since he, Jesus himself, has gone through suffering and testing, look, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So not only does it give us confidence, not only does it help us in our boldness, it also gives us an opportunity to be helped. Because if you wanna get help, you go to somebody that's walked through it. When you want to get help, you go to somebody that has been there, done that, and came through on the other side. And Jesus has done just that. So the whole purpose of this next series over the next four or so weeks is to help us get help from the one who's walked through it all. 
for you to grow in your confidence of Jesus, your boldness in your faith, because he does get it. He gets you. What you're walking through, what you're experiencing, the difficulties and struggles and temptations that you and I face, Jesus gets it and he gets us. He's not detached, he's not distant, he's close by. In fact, Pastor Rick Warren, he said it this way. He said, we do not serve a distant and detached God who spouts encouraging cliches safely from the sideline. Instead, he enters into our suffering. Jesus did it in the incarnation, meaning when God became human, fully God, fully human, that's what incarnation means. Jesus did it in the incarnation and his spirit does it in us now. Because once we accept Christ, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will never leave us alone in our suffering. He walks alongside of us, he walks with us, but he's also walked through it already. So may your confidence grow, may your boldness grow, and may we find help from the one who's walked through it. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into our story today. God, thanks so much for not just knowing us, but for walking with us, walking alongside of us. And yes, walking through all the things that we will walk through or have walked through. Jesus, thank you for your understanding. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and most certainly your help. So may our faith grow because we recognize what you have already accomplished. May our boldness and confidence grow because we've seen you walk through this already. Help us in our time of struggle, help us in our time of need, and help us take next steps as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So each week, we're going to look at a story that Jesus walks through, a story of Jesus, where he walks through something that you and I will most certainly walk through or have walked through. So our first one, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. If you got a Bible, be there. If you don't have a Bible, the best gift I could give you is a Bible. So right outside those auditorium doors, you'll see a big stack of Bibles. Grab one, put your name in it, write in it, bring it with you, have that with you so you can keep digging into the truth that's in God's Word. So Mark chapter six, if you get there, uh, just to give you some context of what's happening, um, and if you do have a physical Bible, most Bibles have like headings where you're actually able to see a little bit of a paraphrase of what's coming up. Just to give you an idea of what Jesus has been doing up until this point, if you even go back in Mark chapter four, you'll see the headings where he's starting to teach a lot more. He's giving parables. So he's teaching people about the kingdom of God and the truth that's found in him. You also see where he's doing miracles. He's calmed the storm. He healed a demon-possessed man. He's healed multiple other people in chapter five, several healings there. You get to chapter six and Jesus has been teaching and healing and doing miracles. And then he goes back to his hometown only to find people that don't believe in him. They completely reject him, which we'll talk about that more in a few weeks uh, in a lot more detail. Then he sends out his disciples. He's been training his disciples to go and continue the ministry. So he trains them, he sends them out. And then he learns of the murder of John the Baptist, which was a close friend of his and a relative. Like there's just a lot going on in Jesus's life and in the lives of each of the disciples. It's building up. I'm gonna use the phrase this morning a lot of being stretched thin. In fact, if you were to think of what we just talked through in those few chapters, Jesus was teaching, he was healing, he was doing miracles, he's training his disciples, he's dealing with some discouragement from his hometown. Like there's all these things and he is stretched pretty thin. That phrase stretched thin just means you do not have enough time, you do not have enough energy to do all the things that you need to do. 
Yeah, that, does, that describes us this last week. <laughs> I'm getting kids back in school and I'm dealing with bedtimes and all the newness there and like still job and family and all the other responsibilities. We can feel like we just don't have enough time and enough energy to do what we need to do or to do what other people are asking us to do. There's just not enough time and energy in the day. Stretched thin. We get stretched thin and Jesus, as we're seeing here, he and his disciples were getting stretched thin. Here's where we're going to pick up the story. And you'll even hear, not that exact language, but you'll get that vibe that they are just depleted. They're tired. They're exhausted. They've been stretched so thin. They need some time away. Mark chapter six, starting in verse 30, we're told this. The apostles, those are the disciples, returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all that they had done and taught. So they've been busy doing their own teachings on Jesus's behalf and and helping people in different ways. Verse 31, then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place. And what's it say? And rest a while. We've been just going at it. We've been teaching. We've been, Jesus has been healing people. There's miracles, like they're exhausted. So Jesus says, we need to get away. Let's go to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. I'd say that's the definition of stretch thin. I don't have time and the energy to do everything that I need to do. They're exhausted, depleted, drained, and stretched thin. And Jesus recognizes the need. They need to get away. So they do just that. Verse 32. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. Parents, I know you do this because I do this. You're depleted. You need some time away. So you tell your kids, I'll be right back. You have no intentions of coming right back. I use the phrase all the time, and now my kids are old enough where they call me on it. I'll say, give me just a minute. Your minutes are really long. (laughs) Yes, yes, they are. I count super slow. Because what do we try to do? We try to just get away just for a minute, but I really mean a couple hours so that I can have that break. But we also know, as we're gonna see here, as much as you try to get away, It rarely ever happens. Look what happens. So Jesus and his disciples, they get in the boat. They're finally able to be alone. Verse 33, but, but many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns, look, ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. You see what just happened here? These, the disciples and Jesus have been stretched so thin. They're so exhausted that Jesus is like, we have to get away just for a little bit. They haven't even had time to eat. So they quietly get in this boat and they start heading across to the other side of the lake. And then people notice, it's like, hey, they're leaving. They can't leave. And so then all these people from multiple towns start chasing them along the shore and they get to the other side of the lake before Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples expecting to step off the boat to peace and quiet, step off the boat to a crowd of people needing them. Moms, that's your everyday life. Verse 34, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had what? Compassion. 
Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Jesus and his disciples, teachings, healings, miracles, even some disappointments in there, a lot of work, a lot of good work, but it's draining and it's been stretching and they don't think they can do much more and then they get off the boat and here they are again, expecting to get some time away. Instead, there's a huge crowd and Jesus has, what was the word? Compassion. Now y'all are in for a real treat today, especially if you're here for the first time or you're relatively new. So I have a favorite Greek word. I know that sounds like a very preacher thing to have, but I have a favorite Greek word. If you've been around me long enough, you know what's coming. This is my favorite Greek word, the New Testament originally written in Greek. And so some of these words, there's a little bit more in the original meaning. We lose some of that in translation. So if you've been with me long enough, my favorite Greek word for compassion, do you remember it? That's, that's close enough. We're going to count it. Splagnitsomai. That's the word. You just want to try it. You want to practice it. Come on, say it with me. Splagnitsomai. That was, that, was, that was the part where you actually do what I tell you to do. Say it with me. Splagnitsomai. You, you need more phlegm in the back of your throat. One more time. Splagnitsomai. Much better. Yes, and splagnitsomai, it really means what it sounds like. It's like it, it, your body tenses, when, gets all tense when you say that word. Literally, splagnitsomai is the bowels of compassion. This is not, and Jesus stepped off the boat and felt sorry for the people. This isn't Jesus stepped off the boat and, oh, you know what? I want to do something just really nice and kind. This isn't Jesus coming off the boat. is like, oh, I feel really sorry for you guys. This is Jesus stepped, stepped off the boat and was moved in his gut. You know that feeling. You see something, you hear a story, you see someone and something just moves in your gut. That is splagnitsomai, compassion. You are moved, not just in your heart, not just in your mind, not, with, not just in, well, I should do something. It's your stomach hurts. That's the kind of compassion that Jesus had. Now, I will be extremely honest. I bet if you were honest, you would probably agree with me. When I get to that kind of a stretch point, all the things, and especially when I'm expecting to be able to have a little bit of peace and quiet, a little time away, I get here, I'm like, it's almost there. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a season. If I can just make it to Friday, like all those things that we say, and then all of a sudden it doesn't happen. And you're like, now I have to keep staying stretched even longer. You know, the first thing to go for me is compassion. I do not feel like being compassionate whatsoever when being stretched like this, when feeling exhausted and depleted, because it's taking everything I have just to stay moving, to just keep taking another step forward, to keep my head above water. We have to spend so much energy when we're that depleted to keep going that I don't think it's intentional. We just naturally shift instead of being outwardly focused, we just automatically become inwardly focused because I'm just trying to make it through another day. I'm just trying to get through this. I'm just trying to make it through this season. And so we stop looking and stop caring about the people around us because we just have to take care of ourselves. It's almost just like a survival instinct, isn't it? One of the first things to go when we are exhausted is our compassion. It's our compassion is the first thing to go. And even more so, 
not just for the people around us, but it's usually even more so the people that are closest to us, our family in particular. We try to push through it and staying stretched and depleted all day. And the moment we come home, our family gets the leftovers. They get the worst version of us because we just don't know how much more we can take. But Jesus shows us another way to walk through it. He was depleted, he was exhausted, he was stretched thin, and he still had compassion. He stretched just a little more. And this isn't just Jesus. This is Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are on this journey with Jesus. So when Jesus says he had compassion on them and began to teach them, the disciples were, well, here we go too. We're right there with you, Jesus. So let me say this to you, because I see this in what Jesus did here. Don't let your exhaustion steal your compassion. It's the first thing to go, like we said. Don't let your exhaustion steal your compassion. That care for other people. Yes, it is exhausting. There's always gonna be someone that wants something from you. And our reaction is, nope, I gotta just take care of me. And what we see from Jesus is he keeps stretching, he keeps holding on, he keeps leaning in just a little bit more. Verse 35, so Jesus taught them, taught them many things. Surely we're getting close to, where's that rest that you promised us, Jesus? Remember that thing about we haven't had anything to eat yet? Remember that thing about getting in the boat and having some quiet time? Is that coming up? You can see this in the disciples, verse 35. Then late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. So Jesus, send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. In other words, there's a lot of people here, anywhere between 10 to 15,000 minimum. A lot of people here, we're tired, we're hungry, they're hungry, this is not gonna go well. You're gonna have a few thousand people hangry if we don't do something about this, Jesus. So the solution, please, Jesus, send them away. We are at our breaking point. We are, once again, stretched thin, exhausted, and depleted. Send them away. Jesus does something unbelievable. Again, they're stretched as far as they can go. They said, would you please send them away so we can finally have a moment Jesus says in the next verse, verse 37, no, you feed them. Excuse me? <laughs> Jesus, you see what we're up against. You want me to do what? We were supposed to have some time away, not feed 10 plus thousand people. I cannot do this anymore, Jesus. Oh, and that's the beautiful phrase. If you keep reading through the story, you'll see them say that. We can't do this. The moment you say the word can't, is the moment miracles begin. Because a miracle isn't required if you can take care of things on your own. It's the moment where you say, I really can't do this anymore. That's when Jesus says, ah, you're where I want you to be. Because now you're dependent on me. Now you have to rely fully on me. Now we can get started. So if you're in a place and in a season where you just feel like you are being pulled at every end, that you feel depleted and exhausted, and if you start saying that phrase, I just don't know how much longer I can keep this up, can I just encourage you? That's where Jesus works best. We're told that in our weakness, he is strong, that his strength is perfected in our weakness. And it took this moment for the disciples to get to this place where they were stretched so thin that a miracle was needed. And if you keep reading the story, we won't go through it, but 
a miracle happens. All of this stretching, all of this exhaustion, all of this compassion led to an incredible miracle, maybe one of the most famous miracles that we have in the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplied it for 5,000 men plus families. A miracle happened because they did not stop. If the disciples got what they wanted, if Jesus is like, you're right, we should totally send these people away. You're right, I pushed too hard. We would not have this miracle. But it was because Jesus kept pushing and stretching and got the disciples to a place where they needed Jesus that the miracle happened. Let me pose a question, rhetorical question. Um, don't mishear this and let me explain. Here's the question. What miracles might we miss because we stop short? Now, I'm not saying you did miss a miracle and I'm not saying keep going and keep going and there will be a miracle. I'm just posing the question, our natural response is when we get to a certain point to just immediately go inward focused and we miss out potentially on what, a, what miracle Jesus might wanna do, not just in you, but through you for those people around you. Jesus didn't let the disciples pull up short just because they were tired. So often we do, we use our exhaustion, physical, mental exhaustion as an excuse to, I just gotta take care of me. We go into survival mode. What miracles might we miss if we pull up short? Now notice Jesus keeps stretching the disciples. He's not breaking them. There is a breaking point. And I would encourage you have a close enough relationship with Jesus where you know where that's at. Because there is a point, right? We stretch, we stretch, we stretch. You can only hold this for so long. It's not to break. Jesus knows that. He walks that well. He's walked through it well. So here's what we see happen next. Verse 44. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So that's the miracle. You can read about that on your own previously. Verse 45, though. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Do you see what he did? He pushed and he pushed and he stretched and he stretched and poured into others and poured into others. And the disciples were right there along with Jesus doing that. But there was a moment where Jesus is like, and now you need a break. And so he immediately and then insisted, like two important words. This isn't just a, hey, well, like as soon as this is done, like we'll figure something out. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. Hey, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Hang in there. No, he said, now's the time. Immediately, he sent the disciples on a boat, put them on a boat and sent them across the lake. Insisted. There's an urgency in the tone here of Jesus. Immediately, and I'm insisting, get in the boat. But Jesus, we're not get in the boat. Yes, sir. They get in the boat and they start heading across and the crowds are still there. Then Jesus takes care of the crowds. He respectfully, I'm sure, sends the crowds away. And then lastly, let me read it again. And he went into the hills by himself to pray. To pray. There's the rest. There's the quiet. There's the purposeful rest, I should say. 
We can't just wait for that to happen, though, right? You know that. I mean, goodness, all of us understand. If we just wait for the quiet time to happen, if we just wait for those moments where, whew, man, glad that season's over. Like, no, that will never happen. There's always going to be something on the other side. There's always going to be something else that is going to dictate our schedule. There's always going to be somebody else that needs something from you. So we cannot wait for it. And we see this even in Jesus's life. He did not wait for it to happen. He made it happen would say the same for us. Don't wait for it. Make time for it. Talking about our prayer life. You can't just wait for some free time. We're all fitted in. You have to be intentional. You have to make time for it. Now for Jesus, this was not a one and done. This is not a one-time thing that we see an isolated story in an isolated situation. Jesus has made a habit of doing just that, of stretching himself, being exhausted, being tired, pouring out his life for others out of compassion. But then we see very intentional moments where he does just this. He sends people away and he gets alone to pray between him and the heavenly father. Here's just a few examples, not all of them. A few examples, if you start reading through of them, look at the commonalities here. Before daybreak, Jesus got up, went out to an isolated place, nobody else around to pray. Jesus often withdrew. Man, that word often's key because it shows us this isn't just a one-time thing or an every now and then thing. This is something that Jesus made a habit of. He did this often, withdrew, got away and prayed. Jesus went up to a mountain to pray and prayed all night. Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. That's very similar to the story we read here. He left the crowds to go and be alone, but again, with the intent to pray. He took other people up with him to a high mountain to be alone and to pray. In Mark 14, they sang a hymn, went to the Mount of Olives. Mount Olives is where Jesus spent a lot of time alone praying. So we make the assumption they worshiped together and then he would go alone and pray. Would now, he went away from other people, even if it was slightly a stone's throw, so not very far. So it wasn't way out in the wilderness. It was just, let me go off a little bit on the side by myself. Point is, he went away to pray. And what we read after telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. A couple of those commonalities that are pretty obvious the alone piece, and he prayed. This isn't he went to be alone just for some peace and quiet. Sometimes that's what we think we need. We're stretched and we're depleted and we're exhausted, so I just need some peace and quiet. But Jesus didn't go alone for peace and quiet. He didn't go away on a vacation. Sometimes we think that, man, I just gotta get through this next busy season and then we got a vacation. Oh, and that will solve all of our problems. Jesus didn't get away and take a vacation in this moment. It wasn't, I just need to rest and I just need some sleep. I need a little bit more sleep. I need to sleep in. I need to take a couple naps. No, he went to pray. Now, all of those things are great. Those should work into your schedule. Resting, relaxing. Our, fa our family loves vacations. We love going on vacations to kind of find that rhythm again with our family. Those are important. I'm a huge fan of naps. I plan on taking one this afternoon. Love naps. I think they are spiritual and a gift from God. Absolutely, we need to take naps. If you need to adjust, this is the only amen I've gotten all day today. <laughs> you do need to manage your sleep and make sure you're getting enough rest. Like, all those things are important, so I'm not minimizing them, but I think we maximize those things and minimize prayer. Please do not minimize the importance, the urgency of and the power of prayer. Because that's what Jesus needed. More than anything else, he needed time with his heavenly father to pray. So they were able to do 
stretch, 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 help people, help, compassion, all the things. You can only hold this for so long, time under tension. It does get tense. It gets real intense. But then they needed the moment alone with God. But what do we do after that? Like oftentimes we talk, I mean, goodness, you're sitting in church. I'm sure it's not the first time you've heard somebody talk about the importance and urgency of prayer. But what do we do after we pray? We usually don't talk about that part, the, the post-prayer. What do we do afterwards? And I want you to see this because it's super important to the rhythm that Jesus had in his life and the rhythms that we have as well. So after he prayed, he did not stay hidden in the hills. Oh, isn't that what we love though? We're so exhausted and depleted that we like to just hide away in the hills for a while. <laughs> I'll come back in a few days, maybe, I don't know. Might not come back at all. We love to stay in the hills. But notice what Jesus does. Verse 53. So remember, he got his disciples on a boat, sent them away. He went up in the hills to pray. Later, catches up with him on the boat, walked on water. Pretty cool thing. You can read about it later. It's not the story today. Verse 53. And after they crossed the lake, they brought the boat to shore and climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once. Uh-oh, sounds familiar. And they ran throughout the whole area, carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he, Jesus, went, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they brought the sick out to the marketplaces. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. Here's the rhythm of Jesus in his ministry to stretch himself, to deplete himself, to care for others to the point that seems unsustainable. And then he retreats away to pray with his father. And then he goes right back to it again, right back into the cities, right back into the villages and helping and helping. And I'm gonna do more than I think would be possible. And then he retreats again to pray to his father. See, it's the moments that we spend with God that his spirit revives us rejuvenates us, refreshes us in a way that naps and vacations will never do. Those are important, but so is your prayer life. It will get you ready for what Jesus has for you next because we jump right back in, right? All of us in here could start listening. Here's what the rest of my day looks like. Here's what Sunday afternoon is like and Sunday evening and then Monday morning and then this next week. Like it's go time as soon as we're done here. So if you want me to preach a little bit longer, we can, we can make this as long as you all want. Just delay the inevitable. But at some point, you're gonna have to jump right back into it, aren't you? So use moments like this well. So what does that prayer life look like? Let me spend just a couple minutes because that's usually the question. Like, where do I start? Like, what's prayer life look like? That's great that Jesus did that. What did he actually say? Instead of trying to walk you through everything, let me show you an example. And this is more of a posture of prayer. What I mean by that is it's not pray this, pray this, pray this, pray this. This is a, how do I get my heart and mind ready to be refilled by his spirit? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, Psalm 46 verse one tells us a truth up top. God is our refuge and strength always ready to help us in times of trouble. Man, that's encouraging. That God is our refuge, meaning we run to him. That's what a refuge means. We go to our refuge and we are covered. We are protected. We are sheltered. So we can always run to him, which we should. After moments like this, we always run to him. And he's our strength. We said that earlier, that in our weakness, he is strong. That his strength is perfected in our weakness. So we trust his strength. And he is always, love that word, always ready to help in times of trouble. Again, he gets us. He knows what we're walking through and he knows what it's like and he knows what it feels like and he gets you. 
So he says, I'm here to help. Run to me. Trust my strength and be willing to admit your weakness and run to me because I'm here to help. If you keep reading, let me read verse 10. Lastly, here's the posture of prayer that I would encourage for you. We're told this, be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Real quick, nation, world, original Hebrew there is not just speaking literally of geographic boundaries. It's really a, a comparison of all the people in the world, all the nations, and then throughout the world, meaning like the land, physical land, that's all creation. So in other words, be still and know that I am God because I will be honored by everything and everyone everywhere. That's basically what we're being told. But what we are encouraged to do is to be still and know that I am God. Now, when I say be still, or if you read be still, we usually think of that in very literal terms in our language of just freeze. Like be still, don't move. That's not what the scripture is talking about. Maybe you think it has more to do with like, well, be still and just like, <sighs> take a breath. That's not what it's talking about either though. Here, the language that we translate into be still literally means to sink. I love that because it's what we do when we're exhausted, isn't it? After a long day, you've been on your feet all day, you find a couch or a chair, what do you do? You sink into the chair. When you sink, you usually sit in a horrible sitting position, right? And your head usually goes back. And where do my eyes focus? Up. That's the posture we're called to have, to sink deep before God. And when I sink before him, I get low and I recognize how great he is. The lower I get, the higher he is. And so I sink before him and I recognize his strength and his might and his power and his goodness and his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I really can only see that when I'm in this position, not running around, sinking. Allow his spirit to minister to your heart in those moments. When you sink before God, you recognize just how little we are and how big he is. We recognize our need for a savior. You start to recognize the sin in your life and we are desperate for a savior to take that away. We recognize our need for his spirit to sustain us. I cannot keep doing this without you. What a wonderful place to be in that Jesus, I cannot do this without you. And to sink before him. This could be a very helpful moment for you and for me. Chances are good. This is the only moment like this you will have for the next six and a half days. Because it's gonna be go, 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 go. And that's maybe if you come back next week. So can I give you a moment? I'm not asking, I'm telling, I'm going to give you a moment to make the most of sinking deep with your God. Because I know it might be the only one you get, at least for the next week. I'd love to think that we would have more of these, but I'm in the same boat. It's go, go, go. So instead of me praying for you and praying over you or leading you in a prayer, would you just sink for a second? Get comfy in your chair for a second. We'll pull the lights down. Don't take a nap. Remember, this is about prayer, not naps. Sink deep. 
let your heart and mind go to the glory and the greatness of God. Sink deep and know that he is God. Let him revive your soul. Let him replenish you. Let him revive you and fill you up.